Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversation with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program for people who want their self-awareness to serve a greater good. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, and today on the podcast, I'm speaking with Charlene Spretnak. Charlene is a prolific author and theorist with decades of work published in multiple fields. In fact, she was one of the initial theorists of the women's spirituality movement in the 1970s and was co-founder of the Green Party movement in the U.S. in the 1980s. In 2006, she was named by the Environment Department of the British government one of the 100 eco-heroes of all time. In 2012, she received the Demeter Award for Lifetime Achievement as one of the premier visionary feminist thinkers of our time from the Association for the Study of Women in Mythology. The way that Charlene and her work came into my life was through a revolutionary book she wrote in the late 70s that I only discovered just a few years ago called Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, a Collection of Pre-Hellenic Myths. So for thousands of years before the classical myths were recorded by Hesiod and Homer, the goddess was the focus of religion and culture. In Lost Goddesses, Charlene recreates the original goddess-centered myths and illuminates the contemporary emergence of a spirituality based on embeddedness in nature. Her work, along with that of archaeologist Maria Gimbutas, inspired a speech I wrote called Learning to See in the Dark, Reclaiming Our Power, Transforming Our World. It appears as episode 64 on the Numinous podcast. Uh, It is an episode in which I do a ton of swearing. This particular uh, interview with Charlene is for those of you who prefer not to have the explicit version of this content. Charlene is also the author of a barn burner of an essay, if if an essay published in the Journal of Archaeomythology could ever be considered a barn burner. Uh, But it precisely and methodically charts the machinations behind the scenes in the academic world of a very systematic campaign to discredit the work of Maria Gambutis, who had theorized that patriarchy has not always been the only mode of societal functioning in human civilization. Maria Gambutis uh, and her decades of research and evidence uh, showed matrifocal societies in old Europe from you know, at least about 10,000 BCE to 2000 BCE. So it's one of my favorite essays I've ever read. Uh, Yeah, Misogyny in Academia, Kel Surprise. Anyway, I highly recommend it to you if you, like me, are a bit of a nerd about that kind of thing. I was super excited and rather nervous when Charlene accepted the invitation to be on the show. I'm delighted that she agreed to come on. I connected with Charlene over the phone. She was at home in Ojai, California. So Charlene, what identities do you lead with? The way I think of my identity in the world is that it draws from three, uh, at least, (laughs) um, maybe that would be four, uh, sources. I'm um, deeply interested in 
um, I guess what I would call femaleness, um, the way I think patriarchal culture distorts so much of women's natural relational way of being in the world, that um, the women's movement was extremely compelling to me from the get-go. And um, that's partially because the second area would be a deep interest in, in the natural world and ecological thinking, which is also relational. I spent my um, parts of my of 11 summers when I was young, from age 8 to 18, in um, a girls' camp down in the uh, southeastern hills of Ohio, the Hocking Hills, which is where the Appalachians start to roll, and it's very beautiful, wild, unglaciated land. Um, and from that experience, I, I, my formative years then, were, or parts of it, were, were spent in this immersion in nature and in a society run by women. Mm. So I had this model of um, feeling really in a cellular way that everything is connected the way you, you do feel when you live in nature for an extended time, and also this model that women could do everything. It was like a little world. Women ran everything. Then when, when I go back up to the city after camp, of course, the messages were the opposite. Uh, it was the 50s and early 60s. No, women can't do anything. So I have that sort of eco-feminist orientation, which is, is deep for me. And um, then religion, spirituality would be a third um, source that I feel flows into me. I was raised Catholic and um my mother and her mother had a deep connection with the Virgin Mary, and that's important to me. And um, then I uh, connected with uh, Vipassana Insight Meditation, and I've studied Native American spirituality of different kinds and um, really comparative religion of, of many different kinds. And, of course, that's why when I um, realized there were these lost, hidden chapters of religion that uh, were very matrifocal or matricentric. Um, I was immediately fascinated with that and wanted to know more. So um, the, the other source would be political. I'm very concerned about um, eco-social justice, putting the two together, an eco-social analysis and vision. Uh, which is why I got interested in the Green Parties when they were starting up in Europe and then um, was one of the people who started it over here. So, yeah, those are all my touchstones, and it all just seems to work fine <laughs> for me and blend together. I know it might seem like a, a mishmash, but um feels very harmonious to me. Mm-hmm. They sound like very strong pillars. You mentioned uh, your growing up years, your childhood and your teens. And uh, I'm curious when it is that you remember you first became interested in the Hellenic goddesses. And, and so the, the, the next piece would be, when did you realize that they had backstories, that there were earlier 
more matrifocal versions of these stories? Uh-huh. Well, I learned about the Olympian Greek myths um, in high school and then college, and I, I wasn't particularly drawn to them. I thought they were interested, interesting as cultural history. I'm very interested in cultural history. Uh, but then in 1972, the um, mass market paperback edition of The First Sex came out. And this is a book written by a librarian in Florida, Elizabeth Gould Davis. <clears throat> and she called it that because Simone de Beauvoir had named her book in the uh, early 50s, um, The Second Sex, Women Were the Second Sex. And so Elizabeth Gould Davis said, no, <laughs> according to, you know, the earliest uh, history in Europe and elsewhere, um, we actually were the focus of cultural history. Societies noticed this, I would say, um, elemental power of the female. You know, lots of societies thought women were impregnated by spirits or the wind or um, paternity wasn't recognized for a long time. And that's why um, anthropologists say that the earliest cultures were the mother and a lot of anthropologists, certainly not all, um, the oldest uh, standing couple is not the husband and the wife, it's the mother and the child. Mm. And in so many cultures, your lineage is traced through the matrilineal line, and a family is a woman and, you know, her brothers, and... Um, and I won't go into this, there are a lot of books of cultures in the world today that have still existed with those lines. So anyway, cultures noticed that women had this elemental power. They um, could bleed in rhythm with the moon. Wow. Mm-hmm. They could swell up like the full moon. And then they could pull out of their body both females or males. Mm-hmm. And then they could transform food into this special kind of milk that kept these babies alive, so there was a next generation. So, you know, they note, they noticed this correspondence, the cycles of the moon, the cycles of the women's bodies, and, and the fecundity. Um, and so there were many then spiritual, cultural expressions of sort of these cosmological powers in women and nature. So that's why she's saying, you know, you can make the case, and that, but she went and found all kinds of clues of um, goddesses and other female-centric expressions that were not in our uh, textbooks of <clears throat> Western history of the West, and um, she made some leaps. Uh, I even I could see that, even though it was the first kind of book like that that I'd read. But I thought, if even one quarter of what she's saying is true, this is amazing. Why why doesn't anyone know this? And I remember driving back from um, a Vipassana meditation retreat. I was living in Illinois then, and I was with two women friends in a VW bug driving. It was in New Mexico. So we're driving back to Illinois from New Mexico. And I was sitting in the back seat reading the first sex, and I remember just yelling over the engine noise, which was considerable. Um, you know, wow, listen to this. This is just amazing. So... Because of that book I read in 1972, um, later when I um, moved to Berkeley, 
um, I saw uh, a flyer on Telegraph Avenue that Hallie Iglehart had put up, that she was going to teach a gathering, a workshop in her home about um, early goddess cultures, and her special interest also was people developing a per- um, personal mythology once they had this information. So I thought, wow, that's I know something about this, you know. Uh, so I went to that, and that was wonderful to connect with other people who were interested in the research. And um, then the third uh, impetus was that um, my daughter, who was, she's about three or three or four, we were driving in the car, and she saw a picture of a horse's wings. It was that logo for Marathon Oil which I think is not around anymore. But um, she said, Mom, Mama, look, there's a, there's a horse's wings. And I said, oh, yes, his name is Pegasus. And he's part of um, a very old, old story. They're called myths, and they're very, very old. And we could get a book of myths, and I'll read them to you. So we went to the Berkeley Public Library to get uh, something suitable. And the only books on the shelves were the Olympian versions where, um, you know, the women were <laughs> really trouble. <laughs> the, the jealous, bitchy wife that Hera was made into or Pandora who opens the box and lets out pestilence and plague and suffering into the world. And I thought, oh, no, no, this is not what I'm going to read to my daughter. Mm-hmm. And besides, where's the older version? By that time I knew there were was a much older kind of mythology in Greece. So that's when I set out to write Lost Goddesses of Early Greece to have that book on my shelf to be able to read to her because it was not available. And I then did a lot of research in the classics library on the campus at UC Berkeley and um, worked with, um, well, showed it to this one um quite well-known professor who was visiting there for a year from Switzerland, and he, he was very um, interested and encouraging. And um, I, I tried to piece together for the first time in about 2,500 years what the stories were of the earlier pre-Olympian goddesses because their altars are much older than the altars in Greece to the male gods. And uh, there's all kinds of evidence linking a practice to their religion, their spirituality of these goddesses before the patriarchal system came in. The patriarchal system came into southeastern Europe and um, elsewhere in eastern Europe then as um, migrations moved off the Eurasian steppes, out of Russia, off the steppes. And they were nomadic patriarchal horsemen who, um, you know, were focused on, um, uh, yeah, horsemanship, weapons. Uh, They had a sun god. They didn't think the earth was sacred. They were focused on the sun god, lightning bolt. Um, What art they had, which was not very advanced, went into the making and decorating of weapons, and their idea of the honorable death was to be killed in battle symbolizing this um, <clears throat> thunderbolt of the sky god. So they moved into southeastern Europe and 
Greece and the islands, and um, there was already an indigenous religion there, uh, a matrifocal religion with several different goddesses in different places of Greece. And um, the horse was extinct by that time in Europe, so when mm. they came rolling in on horses, it was like tanks, you know, they, mm. they definitely dominated and conquered right away without much problem. And then, as conquerors do, they got to rewrite history. Mm. And they didn't just forbid people to ever mention the name of these goddesses. Rather, they incorporated them into their system of a sky god-focused Olympus, Zeus on top of Mount Olympus with his thunderbolt. And the goddesses' names stayed the same but they completely changed their characteristics mm. and made them very subordinate and um, either they were quiet and didn't cause much problems or mm-hmm. they were uh, the source of problems for the mortals, according to their story. So mm-hmm. that's how I came to know uh, there was this older layer, mm-hmm. which uh, I think is so important for us to know about absolutely because so many people say oh if you want to know the you know the earliest expression of the female character we can go to the olympian olympian myths and we'll read about bitchy (laughs) jealous Hera and all these others and i said that's hardly the earliest that's a late overlay Mm -hmm. as the great classicist jane ellen harrison said in around 1903 that's a very late overlay on top of the deeper, richer stratum mm-hmm. that was matrifocal. Well, and it's it's at once heartbreaking and heartening to learn this. I remember when I first discovered your book, which came out of your research, and, and so I guess that was about 1980 or 1981, uh, Lost Goddesses of Early Greece, a collection of pre-Hellenic <laughs> myths. It, 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 I, I both cried and rejoiced Uh, because uh you know I spent my whole childhood loving these myths but not realizing how I was being conditioned to see myself to see other women to see relationships Uh to see our roles and so to realize that there was something earlier it was like oxygen to me because that is the relationship Uh amongst women I recognize that's the power that I feel within myself that's the story that seemed to be um, more resonant and parallel with my experience. And I started to really um, focus on just how unflattering, if we could just put it that way, the, the, the portrayals and the myths are of women in general and as a person who's seeking to um, reclaim myth and to help people find their personal myth. I have, you know, teachers that I've very much respected, uh, when I have brought up to them, where are the women in your stories? And they sort of go like, oh, you're just sort of trying to divide us. You know, these are universal. And, 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 and I have not been able to find anyone who can really hear that, that no, that I love Joseph Campbell, but the hero's journey is not universal. And it's not the only myth. The monomyth is like it's a the the sound of it is so arrogant to me that I know that there's some reason why I've resisted it my whole life, and here uh-huh. is some evidence that that shows that. So I'm really curious about in your research. Um, so first of all, I just want to say, and I'll say it several times, 
this book, Lost Goddesses, has been so transformative for me. And it's a small book. You can read it to children. You can read it, you know, at any age. And the introduction is absolutely a phenomenal tour de force essay. Um, so eye-opening and just made me like, it's very fist pumping to read as a woman. I think I, I really enjoyed it. I'm wondering if there were any goddesses with maybe interesting backstories or, or, or partial stories that didn't either make it into the book, or maybe they were from a different culture that you've come across where, you know, we might be, um, uh, you know, we, we have a cultural, um, idea or, or we, we've received some sort of prevailing wisdom about what that goddess is about that you discovered was untrue or was there anything on the cutting room floor that didn't make it into the book that that still kind of niggles at you mm. um no really the problem was the opposite you know that so little has survived mm. so i really worked to uh fit every bit of research uh, evidence about what these pre-Olympian goddesses had been associated with, what traits were associated with them, what flowers, what birds, what totemic animals, what um, activities. Um, and that's the sad part, how little has survived, mm. which, uh, as I say in the introduction, as stories, these might seem odd to people. They don't have exciting plot development or character development. <laughs> you know, I didn't want to embellish them in that way. I wanted to just um, stick as closely as I could to the facts that have survived. Um, the only myth in there with really a plot would be uh, Demeter and Persephone because the uh, patriarchal one is so well known and I think it builds on the earlier uh, version. I'll explain that later. But um, <clears throat> so I guess um, well, a friend of mine who's a classicist, the, the uh, professor Mara Keller, she once says, where's Brito Morris? Brito Morris from Eastern Crete should have been in there. <laughs> so, well, I know, but there wasn't enough that survived about her. Right. So, um, right. okay. I, I suppose she's on the cutting room floor, but she, there just uh, wasn't enough to work with. Okay. So I, uh, I have used the the myths and retold them and read them to to uh you know women on retreat with me and and I and I've used them a lot and and I fairly recently had the opportunity to uh write a speech for a conference and I was drawing on what I called the dark woman archetype which was these uh stories um from many different cultures of uh you know women who were oriented towards, or their, their message or stories were oriented towards, you know, rage or grief or, you know, justice. And so I was talking about, um, you know, Kali and, uh, and, certain, and so, to some extent, Persephone. Um, I was talking about those goddesses who go on underworld journeys and calling it the dark woman archetype. Now, in your introduction to Lost Goddesses, you, you have a, a section called The Problems with the Jungian Uses of uh, Greek Goddess Mythology. I'd love for you to talk about what I'm calling the dark woman archetype and maybe, you know, what I, what I got wrong in, the, in, in my assessment of what she's about or maybe some, what's problematic about 
um, archetypes in general or, or sort of that Jungian approach by using uh, the model of archetypes? Right. Well, um, this, this section in the introduction uh, I wrote um, <clears throat> because uh, several books by Jungians came to my attention that were using these very negative, ugly depictions of women, and they were calling them the earliest expression of the female psyche. So, as I said, historically, I knew that wasn't right. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them, there was a book uh, called She, um, and it has a long subtitle to it. Um, But anyway, it was was books uh, like that that sort of spurred me to look at this. Well, by the way, that was um, a book called She, Understanding Feminine Psychology, subtitled An Interpretation Based on the Myth of Amour and Psyche and Using Union Psychological Concepts. <laughs> so in it, the author said um, that this uh, story is one of the best elucidations available, the psychology of the feminine personality, um, and he doesn't say it was, you know, again, from this classical period, it's really not that early. But anyway, it says, um, her archetype here, it says, uh, is a primitive femininity with her chief characteristics. This is of Aphrodite. He's talking about the great Aphrodite. Um, her chief characteristics being vanity, conniving, lust, fertility, and tyranny when she is crossed. And I thought, I, I wrote, uh, oh, fertility among a string of negative adjectives. That's clinically interesting. But <laughs> Anyway, so that's why I started looking at that. And then I looked at the way um, Jung did not distinguish um, in the way von Neumann did uh, between these two very different systems of mythology. You can't really talk about Greek mythology. Are you talking about the pre-Olympian or the Olympian system? Mm -hmm. So um, when he wrote that... um, about his uh, archetypes drawn from Greek mythology. He said, evil symbols are the witch, the dragon, or any, and this I think maybe is uh, in in general, he didn't mean only the Greek uh, system. Evil symbols are the witch, the dragon, parenthesis, or any devouring or entwining animals such as a large fish or serpent, close parenthesis. Um, This list is not, of course, complete. It represents only the most important features of the mother archetype. (laughs) And I said, you know, really? Um, or does it represent the most features of the patriarchal archetype of the mother? Mm-hmm. Because witches, serpents, and dragons were never evil symbols in the older tradition. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, uh, uh, for, for instance, of course, we know in the myth of Adam and Eve, that turned all the symbols from the older religion upside down. Mm-hmm. So the tree of wisdom... Uh, was not a dangerous place, and the serpent shedding and renewing was a symbol of mm-hmm. the old religion. And mm-hmm. Christianity had to fight the, the pagan uh, old religion throughout uh, Europe, and they had the myth of um, St. George cutting off the head of the dragon, and they would keep growing back and growing back. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, these this uh, snake and the dragon are not, just necessarily evil symbols, uh, evil symbols connected with the mother archetype, and um, so anyway, I just point out that um, that's a problem with the way archetypes are framed. 
Mm. And uh, I think people who are going to use the union system need to look at that. It's very important to um, honor and um, make, make large in your consciousness the times when you have really stood up to that powerful patriarchal pressure coming at you. And I think everyone has those moments, but I have found that they don't have anywhere to fit in Mm. then daily life. They were aberrant, and the culture is so other Mm -hmm. that they just sort of slip from memory. I've had so many women tell me, I haven't thought about this for decades or years or maybe even decades. Um, Yeah, I once, you know, some, some, it might have been a physical thing, you know, guy was starting to threaten me and I did something and I've just blocked it out of my mind. And I thought, well, you know, unless we take steps, that's what happens. It doesn't fit with the way we're socialized and and the way we go through, through life. I'll give you an example to make this a little more concrete. <clears throat> um, in 1968, uh, there was a lot going on in our country, mm-hmm. a lot of turmoil. Uh, the opposition to the Vietnam War was becoming very powerful. Why are we sacrificing all these young men over there? Why are we interfering with their civil war? Mm -hmm. Because somebody has this theory, this falling dominoes theory, that if Vietnam goes communist, oh, the whole world will go communist. Um, So anti-war movement was picking up speed. And um, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April. Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in June. And then there was the Chicago Convention, <clears throat> the Democratic National Convention in Chicago in August 1968. Um, Eugene McCarthy <clears throat> had run in the primaries on the peace, peace plank to make peace in Vietnam and get us out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of us went to Chicago to support this peace plank and to demonstrate for getting a peace plank in the national platform of the Democratic Committee. And um, as you probably know, there was a police riot Mm -hmm. against the protesters, the anti-war protesters. And, um, yeah, it was was very brutal. There was a big investigation later that said it definitely was a police riot run amok. And I was there... um, on, on the Main Street, Michigan Avenue, with a friend of mine. And uh, we just, we moved down a side street, and we were, <clears throat> I don't know, you know, uh, a few dozen feet down the side street, and around the corner suddenly comes this group, like a platoon of the Chicago Tax Squad. <laughs> and they had... Um, their nightsticks, their billy clubs, uh, raised, and they were running right at us. And uh, they had big boots on, masks, helmets, and I say this weapon raised in their hand, this club. 
and they were swinging at people. My friend got separated. He got pushed down into the gutter into the street and had his head uh, split open in mm. front. And they were coming just right at me, a few feet away from me. I was a 21-year-old young woman um, in sandals and a sundress. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> this guy's a few feet away from me with all this equipment and this weapon coming right at me. And it was one of those few moments in life where words came out of my mind without going through the cognitive process. I didn't really think about it. <clears throat> but when he was just a few feet away from me, I just stared at him right into his eyes, and I said, you let me out of here. And he just froze. You know, it's like, I don't know if he saw his mother or his grandmother or something. <laughs> just froze with his club up in the air. And then he shoved me into the brick wall, but not so too hard, you know, got me out of the way and went clomping past with mm. all his comrades down the block. Mm. L- later on in my life, I encountered patriarchal force, institutional or groups of men, other things coming at me. And it was just, I was just kind of stunned by what was happening. And I look back and I think, now why was that? Because what was happening later, um, which is the typical thing women run into in patriarchal culture in many ways, just to silence and shut down women and get rid of them, that wasn't nearly as life-threatening as having a group of the Chicago tax squad running at you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it had just sort of faded from memory because it didn't fit anywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think when we have those moments, we need to really incorporate that into our psyche. You know, think of yourself as she who shouted down the, the Chicago <laughs> police force, the Chicago yeah. tax squad, she who stood up to the bullies armed. Mm-hmm. Um, mark that day, make your own liturgical calendar every time that date runs around, mm-hmm. or or keep a special sacred journal and write down all the times you did these almost surprisingly courageous things so they won't slip from memory and they become more and more part of who you know you are. You know, mm-hmm. what has been revealed to you come through you as who you are and what you can do mm-hmm. so that it is never lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you in Lost Goddesses, you, you describe the the earlier depictions of these goddesses are, you call them radically body-honoring and nature-oriented. When there is a violation of... Uh, what ought to be body honoring or nature oriented is when uh, we as women can feel so much rage, so much fury, but because in patriarchal culture we have nowhere to put that, we can feel, um, you know, impotent or voiceless. And like you said, there's when 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 it does rise up and there no there's nowhere to put it, it. It is um, so outside the norm that I can definitely imagine that many of us forget those moments. We forget what we're made of. And just the same way that, you right. know, we, when we live in an urban environment, we, we forget that, you know, we don't go into nature. We came from nature. This is what we come from. And so there's sort of a, 
um, a shifting baseline that happens over time that we need to we need to stop and arrest. And I want to just read a couple of lines again from the introduction and, and ask you a question based on this because it seems very related. You say, a woman raised in a patriarchal culture is told that she has the wrong type of body-mind to be taken seriously and to share a sexual sameness with God. Patriarchal socialization tells her that the elemental power of the female is somewhat shameful, dirty, and downright dangerous if unrestrained. And I, I triple underlined downright dangerous if unrestrained, because of course that sounds super exciting and enticing to me. And, and I, I, and, and so I wonder, you know, you talked about an almost idyllic um, upbringing where, where women could do everything, you know, where women were very capable. What, what do you imagine a society of unrestrained females might be like? I mean, and I don't mean this in a utopian sense, but I mean that feminism really is having a bit of a moment right now. Um, and you've spent decades trying to dismantle patriarchy in your own way but when you look around like where are we at now like if we wanted to really harness the energy uh of the no longer compliant uh female you know what where where would you say we should look is there any goddess that can teach us or are we needing to create new myths as you're saying with um remembering this experience and, and charting something new? Like, where are you at with this in, in sort of that personal and political sense? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, a really fruitful place to look is the work of the French feminist philosopher Luce Irigaray, because... Um, she, she seemed to solve the problem we're seeing now with this backlash against feminism. Um, you know, when you were speaking outside of the goddess Themis, the lawgiver, I think that um, if, if we were designing this society, there would be a lot more respect and care about the quality of relationships. Mm-hmm. I think that a lot of men and women actually have a different moral code because they order the transgressions differently. Mm. So for women, like one of the, the worst things is, a, is a, a relational violation of some sort. And for men, that's farther down the list. Oh, yeah, you know, that's maybe not so important. You know, competition with another guy, that's the main thing at the top. So I think we actually uh, are not quite in sync on that. And when we try to bring our values into uh, society, you know, women who become managers and nonprofits or businesses or agencies or whatever, educational um, institutions, um, you know, then they often will get pushback. Like we saw in this last election in the United States, certainly, you know, the men were saying, um, I would never vote for women for president, and basically I want you to all shut up, and I don't want to hear any more about this, you know, the political correctness, as they say, which is really, some people say, should be defined as personal consideration. But <laughs> So if we look at what Aregarai says, um, she's uh, said we could have this dynamic culture of intersubjectivity, male subjectivity and female subjectivity. 
if only both halves were present. But mm. the whole culture is an expression of male subjectivity, the way they see the world, the way they organize mm -hmm. things, what feels comfortable to them. So all the language, uh, the history, the way the institutions are set up, um, certainly the way the um, legal and political and you know business and educational systems are all set up. Um, so because the women have to articulate our own experiential sense of all these societal questions and being in the world. And uh, men need to respect that other half. They can't go on pretending that their half is the norm for all of humankind because there are so many, um, as I say, findings, psychological findings that uh, women and men often see things differently, especially on the relational issues, and I don't mean only personal relationships, you know, also societal. So that's very interesting to me because it undercuts the, the um, possibility for that backlash that just says, you know, you're trying to shut me down, you're trying to, no, we're not. We're trying to bring the other half to the fore so we can have this dynamic conversation in society. And she's, she's very radical about what it would mean for women to think through um, and invent certain linguistic concepts that aren't now mm. that aren't there now, mm -hmm. um, and and everything. She her um, a collection of her work, you know, talks about her ideas for how apartments should be laid out, <laughs> houses, uh, uh, certainly science, uh, what politics would look like, um, education. Um, so, I think that's a very fruitful way to go. Everybody has their space, but there's a vacuum on our side in terms of what's there now in patriarchal culture. And so it, it's our moral responsibility to, to bring, bring it forth, bring forth our experiential wisdom. Mm -hmm. And where does that, this is a bit divergent, but where does that then, though, leave the men who, um, you know, who, who did vote? For Hillary, where does that leave men who also are, um, you know, like patriarchy sucks for men in a lot of ways too. So, how, so uh -huh. how, where do, where, how do we locate that? You know, when when we're sort of like if we're taking kind of an intersectional approach here to go, what do we do to dismantle patriarchy? And we want to, um, we don't want to center comfort. Uh, for men who are uncomfortable with dismantling patriarchy, but we also want to um, create more liter liberation for men who also can see, like, yeah, this is not how I perceive my mother or my wife. This is not how I want um, any woman to be to be treated. I'm, you know, I'm also sick of body shaming. I'm also sick of um, destroying the planet. So, how, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that. You know, as a you you've said as a self declared uh, second wave feminism, where are you at with that piece about like, you know, patriarchy is the problem, and um, and how do we how do we step away from the um, the the it's men and it's a, it's a Mars and Venus problem, as they say. It's a men and women problem and, and connect it more to systems of oppression that, do, that right. really only work for a very narrow range of prosperous white males. 
right. And that's that's the branch of the uh, second wave of feminism I was always situated in. The mm-hmm. cultural feminists have said this is a problem with cultural history and the way the culture is structured, the societal mm-hmm. problems. It's not that this is a biological knee jerk reaction of mm-hmm. every you know baby from the time they <laughs> start uh, growing up. So, absolutely right. But again, to come back, Adegadai, I think, is so important there because, you know, she'll say, you know, a lot of feminists keep trying to change men. Can't you be nicer? Can't you be more relational? Can't you be less competitive? Can't you be... No, they can't. That's their natural way. They love to compete. It just feels right to them, you know. So that's in their half. Just let them be like they are. But we have other things we want to articulate Mm-hmm. And it takes both sides, you know, saying you have to honor our side and that this is what's valid for us. And they, the men, since they have all the structure and power now, really have to encourage this development. And I think, you know, when you said that the men who wouldn't vote for Hillary, you say they'd never vote for women. Everything is presented in this culture in this binary choice. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, uh, do you want jobs or environmental protection? Mm-hmm. Do you want to, for the women to shut up or for you to never have any good jobs or positions again? It's 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 manipulated to be an either or choice mm-hmm. that a lot of people fall for. So that has to be addressed and mm-hmm. say, you know, with the right vision, which is so sadly lacking in this last campaign, really on either side, um, you know, you can really spark new thinking. Mm-hmm. But without the vision, without the deep vision, I don't think you will ever get that new thinking. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought up the election because, of course, um, it's, you know, I mean, I'm I'm in Canada and I was devastated. So, you know, we had, we definitely had some grief and some rage circles happening here. And knowing that, you know, in your personal history, you were one of the founders of the U.S. Green Party. I can only imagine, I mean, I know that was, you know, decades ago, but, um, and so your, your uh, political engagement has, has probably changed in the specifics of your role, but you did mention that one of your four foundational, you know, pillars or identities is political. So, um, I'm, I'd love to hear how this, uh, election has affected you personally and what you are doing personally and politically in light of um, how events unfolded? Well, um, yeah, so many of us were devastated, as you say, and certainly Bernie Sanders was very close to green positions in a lot of what he was saying. Uh, So it was quite sad that he... um, didn't win, and not only that, but in in our system, um, it it's treated like a sports event. If you get forty nine percent of the votes instead of fifty one, the person who gets just a little bit more than you doesn't have to pay a bit of attention to all the people who voted for your positions, mm-hmm. which seems to be wrong to me. It's difficult to know what to do. Just this morning, though, I said to my husband. I just thought of something Bernie should do, <laughs> form a shadow cabinet, mm. because in Europe, they often, the opposition will form a shadow cabinet. They're not elected. They're not official, but 
they're very experienced people uh, who comment, have press conferences, and the press covers that, their analysis of what's going on in the government. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think that's important is because last time we had an administration like this one shaping up to be, although nothing's really been yeah. like this one is going to be, apparently. But when um, President Reagan came in and then um, second President Bush, George W. Bush, it, it was just a full-court press. You know, they put their corporate people in at the head of every regulatory agency. They hated regulation. They shut down everything. They rolled by things. It was like people were dumbfounded. And there was so much going on in 20, 50 different areas at the same time, just mm-hmm. devastation across the board in terms of uh, protecting the public. That's what those regulations had been put in there for, um, that you couldn't really track everything that was going on. So, yes, there'll be these talking heads and pundits commenting on it, but that's like a flow of folk glut. You know, if they had a shadow Secretary of Commerce and a shadow Secretary of State um, commenting with Bernie as the shadow president, mm-hmm. I think that would be very helpful mm-hmm. to um, focus the information so people... So that's just one small thing. Mm-hmm. Of course, I think there's going to be a lot of mobilization. When your political world and the societal uh, uh, atmosphere are tumultuous and chaotic like this, Um, when it seems as though, um, you know, patriarchy and, um, you know, white supremacy, imperialism, all of these things that you've been fighting against you know, your whole life and trying to dismantle and, and enlighten and educate people about when that is all in a chaotic state, what does that do to your spirituality personally? What, what, what becomes most important to you? What practices do you employ to keep your center and hold your ground? Ah, well, as I mentioned before, I've practiced, uh, Vipassana meditation, Mm -hmm. uh, since 1970, actually. And I think that's so important in um, tumultuous and upsetting times to be able to center yourself and not feel torn in so many directions and frazzled. And um, the version that's gone into American and probably Canadian culture called mindfulness takes the techniques out of Vipassana meditation without the spiritual framework. Hmm. So I have my doubts about that. <laughs> I know it's helped a lot of people, um, especially as it's been used in the health uh, world for lowering blood pressure and um, anxiety and all that. But I think it's misunderstood because just a few days ago in the New York Times, they printed an essay in the Sunday Review section by this woman who said, um, you know, I, I think this is the wrong idea, this mindfulness stuff and focusing on the present moment, and there are other ways that it can make you happier than that. That was the article that thought, said, actually, let's not, not be in the moment. Happy. Right. That's what you get when you have a sort of light version of it. You end up with a light um, um, result. Mm-hmm. So it's not about that. It's about, um, well, to come back to this idea that we are composed of and live in these endless fields of dynamic interrelatedness 
that's how the whole biological, ecological, physical world, including humans, is structured and works from moment to moment. So when, when you are um, calm within yourself and the relationships are working optimally, say, even within your own system, your blood pressure and, and are not in a state of uh, high anxiety, you know, you are then in this um, healthy way to be in the world. And that doesn't necessarily mean quietism and opting out of political action, as this essay indicated. Um, so I think, um, it's, it's important for, for anything that you want to do personally or politically when those times come. You just have to be able to find the technique that is going to center you and calm you because then, you know, you're, you're in the condition that's needed for everything to work. When, when you look at babies, you know, what, what they need to grow for their brains to grow for everything to happen is being in an unstressed state, mm-hmm. an unstressed condition. Um, and it's the same for us all the way through life. So I think that has everything to do with uh, activism. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering, you, you mentioned the goddess Themis and as the lawgiver, and I'm, I'm wondering if when you locate ourselves in time and space and in North America at this time, do you think there's a particular goddess that would be helpful for us to ruminate on or to call in or or do you think that there's some there's there's a particular goddess who might be on the rise right now that could be helpful in our activism oh i think that's really a personal choice Mm. you know so for you personally do you have one that is uh kind of on your crew spiritually right now (laughs) that you're drawing on for strength or inspiration um well as i say um my formative great mother figure was the virgin mary Mm. in catholicism and um I, i just think she's such an interesting figure because she's she's not a deity you know, she was uh, a village woman, and in this uh, spiritual um, story, she comes into her larger cosmological self. It's like she grows spiritually into becoming the queen of heaven, mm. or, you know, you could say you have your small self and then your large self. I mean, our, our boundaries are not really the sack of skin that we're contained in mm-hmm. because of this reality of dynamic interrelatedness. We're so interrelated with everything throughout the universe, really. Um, So we have that small self and larger self, um, but we don't often get beyond the small self. Um, Mm. So I just think her spiritual presence is, um, I'm sure it's my own version of it, not anything official, Mm. but um, very, very powerful. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I like that point that she she isn't a deity, but she develops uh uh in in a, a kind of a you know beyond the body, beyond the mind. She sort of it's like a celestial self. She has this higher self or this um more more uh as you say, you know, this dynamic interrelated self that we all get to see. We all get to to 
to hear the story of how she did that. I like the idea that we're witnessing her spiritual growth. That's a beautiful uh-huh. idea. I like that. Thank you. Uh, so the this season, um, in, in the past on the Numinous podcast, I took the last question from the Proust questionnaire, and it was about happiness. But I, I've been really investigating and sitting with grief and rage for several months now. So I've shifted. So this season, we're learning from folks. Um, how How do you manage your own grief and and cope with your own rage when you look around at the world these days mm, I, those two seem like such different emotions grief and rage mm-hmm. i mean grief is a deep sadness which uh, requires time but also a reframing of of what it is that you're grieving over and rage is um I think really calls out for um again a reframing but um you know often when we're in situations like that we can only see it one way so the reframing is you then begin to see different elements of what was going on from different directions and that takes time too Mhm Mhm so true well, this has been a really epic conversation. We've really covered a lot of ground. I really appreciate you being on the show. And I realize that you have many other books that have uh, been written. You, you know, you are an expert on the relational universe. There's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. And I hope you'll come back on the show. But thank you for spending so much time with us today, Charlene. Oh, my pleasure. I love talking with the people who wrote my favorite books, and this was no exception. Uh, You can purchase all of Charlene's books on Amazon, of course, uh, but she's been writing for decades, so your local bookstore is probably happy to order them in for you, and I found several copies at my local uh, favorite secondhand bookseller here in Victoria, B.C., Russell Books, two locations just blocks away on Fortin View Street. That is not an ad. I just love them and encourage people to buy secondhand. I want to thank Charlene for sharing so personally with me, and I want to thank you for spending time with us today. Today I want to give a shout out to my listeners, and I've been hiding the list from myself, so I'm surprised too. My listeners in the UK, but let's break this down. Let's say hi to the motherland, Scotland. Thank you to all the listeners in Scotland. I've set an intention to bring my daughter back to you and let her see the land of our ancestors, maternal ancestors, in, in, uh, when she's 18. Very exciting. Thank you. Thank you for spending time listening to the show. As I mentioned at the start of the show, this podcast is a compliment to the Numinous School, my online intuition development course. If you'd like to be notified when that uh, reopens in June, uh, hop onto my website and sign up for my newsletter. While you're there, you'll see I've posted the dates for my wilderness quests in 2017, May and August, you and me, 12 days in the mountains doing ritual and ceremony. Get all the details at carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care.